and welcome to this third episode of the Sanctions Podcast brought to you by Shoesmiths. I'm John Hartley, partner in the Business Crime and Compliance team. And I'm thrilled today to be joined by an esteemed counsel, Gideon Cameron KC from 187 Fleet Street. Hello, Gideon. Hi, John. It's very nice to have you with us today to discuss all things sanctions related. Um, just give us a bit of your background as to who you are and what you do on day-to-day. So I've been at 187 Chambers, man and boy, and since I became a tenant in 1998 and uh, took silk in 2017 and have predominantly done fraud and money laundering work since. But in the last year or so, and a little bit before that, and perhaps for obvious reasons, that fraud and money laundering work, particularly the money laundering work in relation to banks and high net worth individuals has led me into sanctions work. Excellent. And that's exactly what we hope to discuss here today and some of the the rules and regulations surrounding that and some of the pitfalls that clients and customers of banks might fall into. But what we have seen recently is a heavy raft of sanctions which have been imposed on Russia over the last 12 months. And those have been rapidly and comprehensively put in place, not just by the UK, but by the global community. Have you ever seen sanctions used in this manner before? Well, the principle that individuals and groups um, from countries and regimes of whom the world disapproved is old, but the rapidity and breadth with which this sanctions regime has been imposed is unprecedented. We're now in our 17th iteration of the Russia EU exit sanctions regulations. And each iteration doesn't just broaden, but in fact, sometimes corrects and narrows problems uh, that have arisen in the imposition of what are unprecedentedly broad and deep sanctions. So the answer is the principle's always been there, but this is different in magnitude and depth. So of course, the United States and the EU have implemented sanctions along with the United Nations. But of course, there aren't any sanctions from the United Nations in relation to Russia, because Russia holds that all important veto over any potential sanctions. But of course, many sanctions regimes have gone previously, and you'd hope that we might have learned some lessons over the past to to narrow the focus. Um, And of course, since we've left the European Union and we have the autonomy, to impose our own sanctions from Westminster. Uh, Do you think that that's given the UK an advantage to have that autonomous regime? Not really. I mean, there's been a fair amount of unanimity. Um, The Russia sanctions EU exit regulations, which came into force on on Brexit day, largely mirrored what was already there. There have been, well, there there are seven formal reiterations of the EU sanctions. But there have been a number of other publications, guidance, different answers to frequently asked questions and so on from the EU. Um, The broad principle that investment in Russia, um, the freezing of the assets of prominent pro-Putin Russians, and we'll come on to the rather broader um, risk, hyper risk averse approach taken by the banks to Russians generally is fairly universal. So there is autonomy and Parliament can 
uh, either through primary or mostly secondary legislation, implement its own regime, um, where there's broad unanimity as there is at the moment, I'm not sure it gives any advantage. Absolutely. And I guess, as, as you've already mentioned, there have been 17 iterations to the current regulations. There have. And I take it that some of those changes have been easier to make because it is autonomous, but at the same time, they are correcting mistakes and enhancing and changing things as, as they go along. Um, so I guess it works both ways. Well, a good example is there, there's Regulation 18B, which made it unlawful to hold interests in and shares in assets in Russia. And then um, Regulation, I think it's 60 capital Z, capital A, that it is. Um, largely undid that um, because of the obvious restriction on people who, at a time when it was perfectly lawful, held shares and interests in assets. Indeed, and we, we've been providing advice to clients in relation to Regulation 18B and also the uh, 60ZZA amendment, <clears throat> which, yeah. um, which provides that um, rather belated uh, assistance to those clients. Um, you touched just then, Gideon, on the sanctions prohibiting the flow of monies in, into, into Russia, and that's the, the idea of the sanctions is to limit the uh, Russian economy and ultimately to limit the finances for the war in Ukraine. That may all be well and good, but what do you see as the actual challenges in the day-to-day -day operation of those pieces of legislation in practice? Well, there are, there are two main aspects to the sanctions regime. One is to prevent investment and the other is punitive, to freeze assets. So one is purposive, i.e. stop Russia funding the war, and the other is um, punitive to prevent people who've cooperated with the regime in one way or another in its prosecution of the war from enjoying the fruits of their labours. The challenge is where to draw the line. Indeed. But the sanctions regime doesn't merely make it an offence to offer, for example, banking services or provide funds to a uh, sanctioned individual or company but it also makes it an offence to knowingly or importantly have with reasonable grounds to suspect that a non-sanctioned person might make those funds available to a sanctioned individual. Yes. Which means that banks are constantly informally freezing accounts belonging to people of Russian origin who may or may not have tenuous relationships with people who are sanctioned. Yes. In order to what the bank would call de-risk, avoid risk. And one can understand why they might. And the law of England Wales has backed them on this. The case of him shows clear that a bank is not obligated to execute a contract if in doing so it might commit an offence. Absolutely. And so in day-to-day -day practice, there is the real prospect of ordinary everyday Russians who are not targeted in any way, shape or form themselves by the sanctions regime, but are at risk of having their assets frozen and having restrictions placed on their bank accounts? Well, more frustratingly, um, informally frozen, so with non-capital F. So there's no... Uh, we're all familiar, I think, anyone listening to this podcast, with the way in which banks are obligated to freeze accounts. If someone's sanctioned, if they've issued a suspicious activity report, report and permission's been denied by the NCA, 
if there's a freezing order or if to provide banking services would result in them committing an offence. But there's a fifth category which is increasingly prevalent, which is um, we don't quite like the look of this. And the difficulty for an individual is one, trying to get through the opacity of the banking bureaucracy to try and work out what's going on. And secondly, to try to challenge that decision. Absolutely, yeah. So there are four legitimate reasons, aren't there, why a, a bank can freeze and suspend um, a bank account in relation to, to one of its customers. But in relation to that sort of fifth uh, informal, as you've described it, um, scenario where there's a bit of a sniff test applied. And, and indeed, we, we've seen and heard of many scenarios where even um, uh, customers have phoned their banks to say, we have Russian members of staff. Is it okay to pay them their salaries into their UK bank account? I mean, that that's, may seem like an extreme scenario, but that's one very common question which has been which has been aired uh, recently. But how do banks justify that in relation to any potential discrimination against their customer as to where they may be based or where they may be from? Well, my experience is they don't. There are two approaches the bank takes. Firstly, if they're sensible and there is a reasonable basis for them to fear that funds will be made available to a sanctioned person, they'll tell you. They'll say, um, your husband is sanctioned. I am concerned that you will use funds, even though you're not sanctioned, to look after him. Indeed. And, and if they're sensible, they'll tell you. And the basis upon which you could challenge that, per the case of him chose very limited. Um, most of the time, that's only happened to me once. Okay. Uh, most of the time, there's just silence, followed by um, more correspondence which say nothing, followed by a letter for action from us, followed by a notice of closure. Indeed, and a, a, a cheque is then invariably sent in the post or a banker's draft made available. Which the client can't then deposit anywhere. Precisely. Uh, a sort of catch-22 scenario. I have a, uh, an Iranian client who um, pointed out the impossibility of him then depositing this cheque in another account. So he was provided with over £30,000 in cash, which, as you can imagine, for an Iranian national is no easier to <laughs> deposit than a cheque. No, I could well imagine. And you described there uh, briefly the, the process which may be taken to take a bank to task if they haven't given you access to your funds. If they remain silent, you send a letter before action. But is there a, an official route that um, a person may take to object in relation to their actual designation under Sanctions and Money Laundering Act? Uh, I mean, the, the answer is in theory, yes. So in theory, um, there's a two-stage process. Um, <clears throat> the first stage is, well, you'll be provided with some disclosure as to the basis upon which sanctions have been imposed, so on the basis of your designation. And um, you'll be given an opportunity internally to challenge that. There's an online form that one fills in in order to advance a challenge. They don't, it anecdotally have a particularly high rate of success, as one would expect when the person to whom you're appealing is effectively marking their own homework. 
there is then a route to the High Court applying the principles of judicial review, which, as we all know, is a high bar. A very high bar. Um, and um, I'm unaware at the moment of successful litigation challenging designation um, from the current um, crop. Indeed. A high bar and an expensive bar, and one yes. that, um, unless you are successful in uh, seeking a license at some point to have your fees paid, then it will be on a pro bono basis until such time, one assumes. Well, no, you, you can, yes. Uh, so there is a general license in place for um, um, legal fees, and people generally are successful in applying for particular licenses for pieces of litigation. Uh, I don't know whether that's the major obstacle. It's that there are two obstacles, I think. The first is it's very expensive and very difficult to win. That's two in itself. But the, the third is that I think there is a hope and one must remember that a lot of the people of Russian origin who are finding themselves having their assets frozen are not pro-Putin at all. Indeed. And so um, there is a hope that in due course, perhaps, the regime may change. Not the sanctions regime, but the regime in Russia or its attitudes toward um, its current war of aggression that may result in the current sanctions regime falling away. Yes. So one would have spent an awful lot of money um, litigating something that may in due course, or is likely in due course, itself to fuss away. Now, some applications are, of course, time sensitive, uh, blocked business deal, um, investment funds, and so on. But I have a client, for example, at the moment, who was given a valuable gift by a person who was subsequently sanctioned. Now, on the face of it, nothing wrong with that. But the bank said, well, hold on. Um, um, we're concerned that, in fact, that wasn't a gift. It was money that you're holding for them. So we're not going to allow you to use it. I see. Um, and in those circumstances, do you litigate over that sum of money or you just, do you just leave it in the bank and wait for the sanctions to go away? It's a difficult decision. It is very difficult. And I'm aware that in, in certain quarters of, of law enforcement, there is um, talk of potentially committing an offence of circumventing the sanctions yeah. regime. If you suspect that you are about to become designated and therefore your funds are about to be frozen, but not actually frozen, it may be considered an offence of circumventing if you move your assets around and place them with other parties before you are sanctioned. The answer to that is I know there's been discussion of that. I'm one of those who thinks it would be unlikely to succeed. I think, I think the sanctions regime is rather binary. You either are or you aren't. Yes. There are no tipping off provisions. It's completely separate from, from um, the SARS regime, as the NCA has been keen on numerous occasions to point out. Stop telling us about sanctions. Please tell Ofsi, um, they say. It's also true that um, most people who are sanctioned do not know in advance. They think they might be, but yep. they do not know in advance. I mean, from a, so, so from an evidential point of view, and I think from a purposive point of view in understanding the sanctions regime, I'm not sure that that um, would be circumventing if it is a genuine gift. If, on the other hand, you're giving someone money so that while you're sanctioned, they'll look after you. You're both committing an offence. Indeed, absolutely, absolutely. And the legislation does make that, that clear. But on, on a similar point, on a similar theme, how do banks themselves become aware that a person 
is to be designated? Are they made aware at the same time as the designated person? And is there then potentially a mad rush to move funds out of an account? The person whose funds, uh, the person, who, person whose funds are to be frozen is obviously not told in advance that they are going to be sanctioned. If you're a certain kind of high profile personality, I've absolutely no doubt that one knew as soon as soldiers marched in or even before on February the 24th, 2022, that sanctions were likely because the West had said Indeed. that sanctions were coming. But for most people who are designated down the food chain, not in the immediate tranche, but later on, family members, people lower down in businesses and so on, they probably did not know. And so were not tipped off by uh, OFSI that the designation was about to come. Um, I have been told that there's no um, special relationship between OFSI and the banks. Obviously, there's communication and the banks take a keen interest in the um, list of designated persons, which is a public document. Um, I'd imagine there is a system of formal notification, but um, the answer is I've never been in a bank when that notification has been given, so I don't know. Absolutely. Okay. That's really, really very interesting. And so what are your current thoughts on the overall effectiveness of the UK's regime against Russia? Um, I suppose effectiveness means different things to different people. So as an instrument of policy, it's been extremely effective. Yes. Uh, to the point where the US Treasury has been going around banks in the US talking about the over-imposition of sanctions, the um, over-cautious approach taken to what are otherwise perfectly ordinary transactions somehow connected with Russia or Russians, but are in fact perfectly lawful. And the anecdotal evidence from Russian clients of mine who have absolutely no connection with sanctioned individuals or the sanctioned entities or the regime who are finding their banking and trading lives incredibly difficult is that um, banks either deliberately or, or probably not deliberately, but in order to avoid the risks created by the very broad ambit of the sanctions regime, are being a very effective implementer of government foreign policy, which is to punish Russia for a war of aggression. Now, the other way of looking at effectiveness is, are you punishing the right people? Um, and the answer to that question is, you're almost always punishing the right people, but you're also punishing an awful lot of others, unworthy of any kind of censure or connection with your purpose. And that's an issue under the Equality Act, yes. and it's an issue under contract law. Indeed, and it comes back to a point that we were discussing a little earlier about lessons which may have been made from history um, in relation to sanctions, which may have been uh, implemented on certain regimes which caused widespread devastating effects on those um, countries and the people of those countries who were innocent bystanders. Well, th there's that aspect, but there's also the rights of British citizens of Russian origin or Iranian origin who've done nothing wrong, who find themselves effectively debanked, to use the awful phrase that banks used. Indeed. To be off-boarded, to coin another awful phrase that banks <laughs> used. 
And in a sense, I don't blame the banks. I've spoken to a number of people at banks working in this sphere who tell me that they were simply overwhelmed with the workload involved in seeking to properly to impose these sanctions and that this sanctions regime. And that of itself may explain why broad category decisions ended up being made in a way that no bank would deliberately or want to make, but were forced on them by circumstance. Um, it may be that a process of recruitment and the passing of time has improved the quality of those decisions. One would hope so. One would hope so. Um, I think it's inevitable, of course, that the current regime that the UK has adopted in relation to Russia is is here to stay, certainly for the intermediate future until things may change. Uh, and even if things do change in Russia, I, I suspect that it'll then take some time for any amendments <clears throat> or, or restrictions to be eased. But do you think that the the regime which has been adopted swiftly and comprehensively in Russia and against Russia will serve as any form of warning to any other nations? Well, certainly if <clears throat> a state bent on a war of aggression had any doubt before that the West, and it is the West, um, would react in the way that it has, there's no doubt anymore. So if you thought you were going to trade with the EU, the US and the UK and behave in the way that Russia has, um, you now know that that won't be the case. And although Russia is finding alternative markets for its oil in China and India and other friends, for example, in South Africa, um, the long-term damage to the Russian economy will be extremely significant. It will. As a policy pour encourager les autres, I think it's certainly likely to be effective. Um, but I think the priorities of, and, and I've, I've certainly never met Mr. Putin, and um, he, he, he uh, clearly thinks about the world in an extremely different way, in the sense that I'm not sure that a fear of economic sanctions weighed particularly in his decision-making on Ukraine, certainly based on what he says. And it may be that if you're the sort of person who um, is sufficiently nationally motivated to engage in a war of aggression, um, your rational economic senses may be dulled already. <laughs> so I don't know. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I think it'll be a um, comprehensively different series of podcasts to uh, attempt to psychoanalyze Mr. Putin. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much, uh, Gideon Cameron Casey of 187 Chambers. Uh, thank you ever so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on sanctions. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.